Welcome to Plodcast, episode 51. Uh, this has been uh, a lot of fun doing these podcasts and Plodcast podcasts, and thank you for thank you for joining me. Uh, what I wanted to talk about to, uh, today is a a particular approach to human sexuality, uh, and and lay out before you two basic approaches to human sexuality. Um, this is something that I first uh, learned from George Gilder in his uh, book *Men and Marriage*. Uh, he he initially wrote it as sexual suicide, and in the process became a Christian, and and he's issued the book in. Uh, in a revised version, Men in Marriage, and he, he goes into this argument that I'm about to uh, uh, set out uh, in detail in that book. Um, this, is, um, this is an argument where I have some skin in the game. A number of years ago, many years ago, I was fired from a job at, uh, at our local public radio station. I had a, a weekly audio column uh, where I presented on on air my conservative view of the the world, and I uh, went into this um, point I'm about to make and and got the heave ho as a result of it. Uh, there was a there was an uprising um, among public radio listeners over the, over this point. So, um, well, what is it? Um, basically, uh, there there. there two related issues. One is that men are dominant. Men, as opposed to women, are dominant. And the only thing you can do um, if you are um, trying to arrange this or modify this or, or um, affect it by means of your laws, the only thing you can do with male dominance is make that dominance destructive. You can't, you can't make it go away. Men are going to be dominant, and women are going to respond to that dominance. Uh, you can't make it go away, but you can make uh, male dominance into a very bad thing. Um, and this is related to another point, the second point. And that is, um, you, with men and women, you have two very different approaches to sex and sexuality and what would be considered uh, apart from any other consideration, what would be considered desirable or pleasurable by the person thinking about it? Um, basically, um, men have uh, a more lackadaisical, um, hit-and-run approach to sexuality, and women have more of a nesting approach to sexuality, and this makes sense because uh, women are the ones who are left with the offspring. They're going, to care, they're going to care about caring for the offspring. Now, what Gilder argues is that uh, these, these things are related. What Gilder argues is that uh, if, you, if you have a society in which the f- uh, feminine sexuality, the, f- the female approach to sexuality submits to the male approach to sexuality, then basically what you have is a the the ethics of a motorcycle gang, or the um, or the ethics the sexual ethics of a boat full of Vikings, um, that that's feminine sexuality submitted to male sexuality. If, however, um, as Gilder argues, if if male sexuality is submitted to female se- sexuality, then what happens almost instantly is civilization. 
when men submit their sexuality to women, and particularly to one woman, what happens is that cities form. What happens is that civilizations begin to take shape. Now, and the men no longer, uh, the men agree to quit being pirates. The men agree to quit their freebooting ways. Now, in order to get men to quit being pirates uh, and to settle down and devote themselves to one woman and to stay faithful to her, um, there has to be a trade-off. And what Gilder argues is that trade-off is male dominance in that civilization that is being built. If men, um, if men are given something constructive to do, if they matter, if their, if their position is uh, important um, in this society, they will agree to settle down. But if you, in the name of equality, outlaw constructive male dominance, men taking responsibility for their offspring, men providing for their wives, men providing for their families, men um, protecting their families, that's their role, that's their responsibility, and in exchange, they get to call the shots. In exchange, they get to lead. Um, uh, the end result is civilization. But what happens when you outlaw leading? Right? The, the contract is broken. And what happens is we gradually, and sometimes not so gradually, begin to slide back toward the uh, ethics of the biker gang, the ethics of the boatload of Vikings, which is precisely what we've seen in our era. So my book review here on episode uh, 51 of our podcast is a book called Toxic Charity. I just recently finished this. It's quite good. Um, it is a book that, that runs along the same lines as a, another book that I would recommend to you, uh, When Helping Hurts. Many times people who are involved in philanthropic work are involved in that work not because they actually want to help the people that, who are the recipients of the offered help, but rather because they feel guilty for what they uh, possess. They feel guilty for all the, uh, you know, the, the blessings that they have, and they're trying to atone for that guilt some way. I've got to give back somehow. I've got to do something for somebody else. And, and because... Uh, the motivation for philanthropic work is oftentimes suspect. Um, it doesn't matter if the effects of the charity or if the effects of the uh, philanthropic work are destructive. What matters is the good intentions. So we have good intentions. How, how could this possibly be bad, parenthetically, for us? How could it possibly be bad for us? to get a busload of kids from our youth group and have them driven down to Mexico and do a short-term mission trip. or to, um, uh, And this is something that, uh, um, oh, I've forgotten the gent's name. I should have written it down. The, this book, Toxic Charity, it's on Amazon. I think that his name is Rupton. Um, he, he shows how oftentimes the... Uh, the work that we do, the mercy mission that we do, the food bank that we set up, the handouts that we provide are, are just bad for the people that we're giving to. 
it's a short-term uh, it's a short-term relief but we create a cycle of dependency we create we, we, we don't know how to give um, to these people in a way that that, that would genuinely be, be beneficial for them and uh, and would really help and would really help in the long run so a lot of deacon boards need to read toxic charity a lot of deacon boards need to read when helping hurts and sort of internalize um, internalize the the message of course christians should want to help those who are less fortunate but helping less do you want to help someone who is less fortunate and actually help them or uh, and set it up this way suppose you could um actually really tangibly, palpably help someone, but no one thought that you did. No one thought that you wanted to. Or the other way to go is everyone in the world thought you were the most generous guy in the world, but all your generosity wouldn't result in anybody actually being helped. Which way would you go? Which way would you choose? So here, here we are, podcast 51, and we come now to our hamartiology section. This is, um, this is going to, this, this little segment is going to be a short little buddy, um, because I don't have a lot to say here, but I might as well say it. The two times that the word hamartia appears in 2 Corinthians, it is in that great passage talking about the great trans- transaction that occurred in the cross. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's 2 Corinthians 5.21. Christ knew no sin. He never sinned. He was not a sinner. But the one who was not a sinner became sinful, full of sin. The sin that he was full of was not his own, um, until he made it his own by taking it on himself at the cross. And he bestowed on us a righteousness that was not our own until he made it ours by means of his imputation. So Christ, um, when Christ was abandoned on the cross in the great cry of dereliction, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, um, Christ is deserted by the Father. In that desertion by the Father, for our sin. The reason he's deserted is because of our sin. In that moment, he, he still doesn't sin himself. He's quoting scripture. He quotes Psalm 22.1. He's still crying out, my God, my God. It's not, it's not a, a, a cry of blasphemy or, or you know, something wicked. It's my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so we can say that in that cry, in that cry of dereliction, uh, where Christ was forsaken by the Father, that cry of dereliction pleased the Father. And so it is that we were saved. God in the time of the sickness, God in the doctor too. You've spent a pleasant half hour with podcast proprietor Douglas Wilson. This podcast is produced by Canon Press. Please take a moment to subscribe to the podcast on your favorite listening platform. To hear more from Doug, please visit canonpress.com.